You can take your Bibles and uh, turn them with me to the book of Psalms chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2. Uh, the nursery is now open. We had it closed earlier during the service so that everybody could participate in the, in the living cross, but uh, if the nursery is helpful to you, uh, feel free to take advantage of that. Um, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm is an easy book to find because it's in the middle uh, of your Bible, and it's the biggest book in the Bible, Psalm chapter 2. In, uh, in preparation for this message, I found myself reflecting on a phrase that's become quite popular in the past few, past few years as people talk about um, being on the right side of history, the need to be on the right side of history. Uh, very often that sort of jargon is used for those who are arguing for a particular cause uh, where political activists are trying to uh, sway their opponents in whatever kind of policy or cultural shift they're advocating for. And they'll, so they'll say, well, well, you don't really want to oppose this. We're on the right side of history, and you, don't want, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? And so history is seen as something that is marching forward. It's bending towards a certain moral direction shaped by humanity's evolving moral compass. And what direction is the right one depends on who you're talking to. Uh, but whatever, whatever it is, you better, better figure out what it is when the moment comes so you're on the right side of it. Now, the Bible gives us a different concern. Uh, history ultimately is not something marching forward to the beat of human will and preference. The Bible sees history as a story that we're all swept up in and, and, and play a, a role in. And ultimately, it's a story that we don't control because we aren't the main character in the story. History is really His story God's story, and to be on the right side of history is to be really on the right side of his story. Now, Psalm chapter 2 was written by King David around 1000 BC, give or take. It's a royal psalm. Uh, perhaps he wrote it for or in reflection of his own ascension to the throne. Perhaps he wrote it for his son Solomon and the coronation of future kings. But as the fortunes of Israel turn dark because of their sin and idolatry and rebellion and the nation face exile and foreign oppression, Psalm 2 began to function for the pious Israelite as a psalm of hope as the people of God look not to the past and the glory days of David and not to the disappointment of David's sons, but to a future and a greater son of David and His greater glory, one who would usher in a greater kingdom, even a global kingdom. So let's find out more about this. You can uh, stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the, the reading of the Word of God. We're in Psalm chapter 2, and we'll read the whole psalm. David writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, "'Why do the nations rage?' And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is Your holy and inspired Word, and it's about to be preached by an uninspired, weak, flawed preacher. But Your Word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and can do things that I cannot do, which is touch hearts, which is to convict, which is to encourage, which is to open blind eyes to the reality of who You are. So, Father, I pray that You would work through Your Word this morning and that it would not return void. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 2 would have been a reminder to the Israelites that their nation existed to be a blessing to the other nations. And specifically, uh, the blessing would come through the Israelite family of a man named Judah. Uh, And as those Israelites sung Psalm 2 at the royal coronation of Judah's descendant David, or one of the future kings, it it would have brought to their recollection that their story, as well as the, the story of the entire world, is irrevocably connected to the global purposes of God working itself out through the Davidic dynasty. Now, as we begin to think carefully about this text, uh, we notice that David first writes about the rage of history, the rage of history. Verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, that word rage can be translated as noisily assemble. The idea is of a large gathering of people who are in such a state of angst and turmoil that they can't keep quiet about it. The nations are in an uproar. And who are they raging against? Into verse 2 says they are raging and plotting against the Lord and His anointed. God's anointed would be the king that God has raised up and established. The king of Israel was supposed to be God's representative on earth, ruling in God's stead, exemplifying God's righteous and just reign. David was the Lord's anointed. And as the Lord's anointed, he serves and fights as God's representative, protecting the people of God and and defeating and bringing under his subjection the wicked, hostile, pagan nations around him. Uh, Some of these people ended up serving him and and bringing him tribute. You can read about David's victories in in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and and chapter 10. But here in Psalm 2, you have David either uh, foreseeing a time or he's in a time right now where these enemies of God around him are growing restless and angry that the Lord's anointed is ruling over them. And, And these surrounding vassal kings have had enough and they plan an uprising. They've grown tired of being under the king's rule, and they want to rule themselves. And notice in verse 2 that to resist and fight against God's kingly representative that God has established is to raise your fist in defiance of God Himself. Uh, the rebellion against, is against uh, the anointed, yes, but it's against the Lord and His anointed. 
And so Psalm 2 is a picture of a people raging against the purposes of God. Now again, this is a coronation psalm where God is installing and establishing the king in Jerusalem, in Zion. And while there are reflections of Psalm 2 in the coronation of David and, and those of the Davidic line to come later on, clearly this psalm expands beyond what any normal king has experienced or has accomplished. David here paints a picture of worldwide rebellion, but neither David nor his sons after him ever experienced anything exactly like this. And so the echoes that we see in David and and the other Davidic kings are only echoes because no earthly king can totally fit the global universal vision of what this psalm is talking about. And often the Bible does this, where where the, the immediate thing going on is a microcosm, it's a prophetic example of a future greater reality. And David here sees the whole world engaging in an attempted coup against the Lord and His anointed. Now, that word anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. They are setting themselves up, the nations are setting themselves up against in opposition to the Lord and His Christ. Verse 3 says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And that kind of language almost sounds like they're chained up and in prison. That's not what it's talking about. And I think the Septuagint, the, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, gets this right in translating it as saying, let us cast away their yoke from us. Uh, what's a yoke? A yoke is put on an animal so that it can be under control, so that it can serve its master. You see, the issue here is not about imprisonment, it's about control. They don't want to be under the control of God. They don't want to be accountable to God. They don't want to serve God and His purposes in history. They want to serve their own ends. They want to build their kingdom instead of God's kingdom. Uh, they, They don't want God to be the main character and hero at the center of the story. They want to be in the center and make life all about them. And so, you may, in response with David, shake your head in disbelief and wonder, why would these arrogant kings do this? But here's the punchline. The testimony of Scripture is that this is the hard attitude of everyone, apart from the transforming grace of God. The testimony of human history is one of rage against God, of a desire to be autonomous from God and free from His control. That was at the heart of the very first rebellion, way back in the beginning of the Bible, with Adam and Eve in the garden, as they sought to throw off God's restraints. Uh, They would not heed the Word of God. Instead, they wanted to determine what was right and what was wrong. And that that hatred uh, for God has been the legacy of humanity from the very beginning. And the climactic expression of man's hatred for God was demonstrated in man's response to God when He showed up 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. At first, Jesus had lots of followers, but they were fair-weather followers. Just one example is Palm Sunday, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and thousands are there, and they are cheering and they are shouting and waving palm branches and declaring Him to be the King of Israel. But in the end, nearly everyone rejected Him. The shouts of Hosanna on Palm Sunday gave way to the cries of crucify Him on Friday. He came to His own people, John chapter 1 tells us, and His own did not receive Him. Why? Why? 
Because on the one hand, they wanted a king, but on the other hand, when they discovered the mission and the plan and the will of Jesus, and that it did not line up with what they wanted from a king, they were done with Jesus. Jesus didn't deliver to them what they expected, whether that be lots of miracles to meet their needs or coming to destroy their enemies, or whatever it was, God wasn't who they wanted Him to be, and so they rejected Him and murdered Him. That's really the full expression of how man, in his core, feel, feels about God. In Acts chapter 4, you have Peter and John, and they've been preaching about Jesus, and they're telling everyone that He's the true King and that there's no hope and salvation found outside of Him. And the authorities, they get angry about this. They get annoyed, and they start persecuting them and threatening them. And it's interesting how they respond. They respond with prayer. And in their prayer, they interpret the murder of Jesus through the lens of Psalm 2. And they say, it says, text says, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this very city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They apply Psalm 2 to that situation. They, the, according to them, the plotting of the nations against the Lord's anointed ultimately finds its expression in the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. And it's interesting because the disciples talk about Herod and Pontius Pilate, who were actually enemies of one another, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel who hated one another. And yet they all find unity in their hatred of Jesus, and they, and they stand as representatives of an entire world in opposition to God and His anointed. And the raging against God continues in the hearts of men and women today. Uh, we have all inherited from Adam and Eve their treasonous tendencies, and in our natural condition, our hearts are just like theirs. And so, you have the Scripture saying in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Or you have uh, Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. There are many other Scriptures like that that testify to the true nature of the human condition. And don't just think that hatred for God is relegated to Satanists or to Iron Age warlords rebelling against King David or hostile atheistic professors in academia who seek to undermine Christianity. Hatred for God exists in much more subtle, insidious forms and often with a smile. We find prevalent messages in our culture, and even in some churches, where God is demoted to merely being your consultant. Uh, he's the one that's there to, to get you out of a jam when you need Him. That God exists to serve you and help you live a better life and to, to fulfill your dreams and your desires and give you the kind of life that you think you should have. And yet, upon closer examination… It becomes evident that there is nothing in their lives that indicates a desire to submit to God as the sovereign king. And often the proof of that 
is when you speak God's truth into their lives as revealed by Scripture, and it doesn't line up with what they want to do, what happens next? They reject that. They don't want anything to do with that. Don't judge me. Don't tell me what to do. Get that yoke off of my back. I'm going to do what, what I want to do because this seems right in my own eyes. Folks, that's how we all naturally are in our sinful, fallen condition. Uh, God and His Word and His law seem like a stifling yoke preventing us from being free and being happy. And either we get offended and we reject, the, we reject God altogether, or we refashion God. This is what most people do. We refashion God in an image that we approve of. We smooth off the rough edges, the parts that embarrass us, the, uh, the parts that we feel stifle us, and then we polish up and emphasize the parts that we like. Now, when you do that, you have tossed aside God and you have constructed an idol. And that is no different, no different than Psalm 2. It's an uprising. It's a rebellion. It's, it's raging against the one true God. And if you're here this morning and you're pushing back against the God of Scripture, first of all, I'm really glad that you are here. But because I love you, I also need to tell you the truth. And the truth is that God isn't willing to be your personal consultant for your personal kingdom. He's, he's the king, not you. And you either bend the knee to the king or you take your stand with the rebels in Psalm chapter 2. There is no middle ground here. But if you do, if you take your stand with the raging rebels, you'll be on the wrong side of history. So Psalm 2 shows us the rage of history, but it also shows us the sovereign God of history. The sovereign God of history. So how does, how does God respond to this worldwide uprising? Is he, is he afraid? Is he wringing his hands and calling his advisors? And he's like, what am I going to do? I've got a rebellion on my hands. No. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. That makes some of you uncomfortable. <laughs> this is your God. I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine if you went outside after church, and as far as you could see were armed men, thousands upon thousands, armies, and they, they've surrounded Harbin's church, and they're all pointing their fingers and their weapons at you, and they're saying, I am against you. You wouldn't just be intimidated, you would be terrified. Now step back. And imagine all of the armies of all of the nations in all of their might and all of their rage, and they are shouting up at God, and they are saying, we defy you. We are not going to be under your control anymore, and we're going to get rid of you. And God, in His response, doesn't even get off of His throne he doesn't even show the, his enemies the respect of standing up for them. He remains seated, and he laughs. He laughs because the idea of humanity taking him on is absolutely ridiculous. It's a joke. It's like a, a termite trying to bring down Mount Rushmore. It's futile. It's the most stupid and hopeless thing you could ever imagine. It can never work. It's a fool's errand. Verse 5 brings us to a transition with that word then. 
In the first part of the psalm, we have all this human angst and raging and bravado, and immediately it comes to an end in verse 5. From this point on, there is no more chest-thumping from the rebels. From here on out, it's all God, and He has the last word. Verse 5, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. So all of a sudden, all of the perceived power and cockiness of a rebellious world proves to be a sham as the failed uprisers are now reduced to knocking knees. Uh, The rage turns to terror as they realize they have made the worst mistake of their lives. Look at verse 6. God says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see the point here? God does not negotiate with rebels. He doesn't alter His agenda to make them happy. There's no no compromise. God is determined in His purpose. He has a king in mind, and He will establish that king. You can rage all you want, but it's a done deal. This is happening, whether you like it or not. What we see here is a God who is totally sovereign and completely in control. He is in control of everything even history. He is the author of history. It is His story. But to have a a, a God that is completely uh, in control of every detail of the universe has fallen out of fashion today, even in some churches. Now, why is that? Well, it's because we want to be in control. (laughs) Somebody's got to be in control. Why not me? Uh, We don't like the idea of somebody who is totally sovereign over everything, including us. Our hearts push back against the idea of an all-sovereign God, and yet the Scriptures push back against us. And so the psalmist declares in Psalm 115 that our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Proverbs chapter 16 says that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, even things that seem random like a lot cast in the lap or a roll of the dice, those things are under the sovereign control of God. And that can really grate against us sometimes. But this is your God. And when you think about it, you really don't want Him to be anything less than sovereign. Because if God isn't 100% sovereign, then you can never have 100% hope in this world. Uh, there could be a chance that a, a plan that God makes might backfire. Uh, there, there could be a chance that a good thing that he's trying to do might fail. Uh, there's a chance that one day his enemies might get the upper hand, that one day a promise might not come true, but the Scriptures tell us a different story. And so the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, friends, is the soft pillow that I can rest my head upon every night, and I can rest with confidence that there is no event in history, in his story, that is out of control. He is in control on the macro scale, but He's also in control in the little storms and the trials of my little life. He's in control of it all. But while the absolute sovereignty of God gives comfort to those who are for God, it turns out to be a source of great dismay and frustration for the enemies of God because God always gets His way. How frustrating would that be to fight against somebody who always gets His way? And even when others push back against His rule and try to throw His yoke off, they end up serving the purposes of God. 
Think about the story of Joseph where his evil brothers tried to to stop God's plan for his life from coming to fruition, and they betray him and sell him into slavery and send him uh, far away to another land, and yet their rebellion turns out to be the very means that God uses to accomplish his purposes for Joseph. How about evil Haman in the book of Esther who seeks to destroy the Jews and hang his enemy Mordecai, and he builds the gallows to hang him on, and little does he know that he's building the gallows that he himself will be hanged on. Because God exposes his plot and preserves the Jewish people. He's undefeated. He's got a thousand batting average. And that's just going to go on and on and on. Every time rebels lift their hands to defy and defeat the purposes of God, those same hands end up serving the very plans and purposes of God because he is sovereign. So, a little application here, fear God more than you fear political entities, more than earthly governments. Quit freaking out every election cycle. Quit fearing the political party that you're against. And quit letting your emotions be governed by the talking heads on the cable news networks that often are viewing history through a worldview that does not include a sovereign God. Behold, the prophet Isaiah says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. God is not afraid, and neither should you be. So Psalm 2 shows us the rage of history and the sovereign God of history, and closely connected to that is the king of history, the king of history. In verse 7, the king speaks, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Reaching back to the original context of Psalm 2 as a coronation psalm for the the kings of Israel, verse 7 may have been spoken by a prophet or read by the king himself during that ceremony. And that word in verse 7, today, marked the moment when the new king formally took up his inheritance and his titles. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David of an everlasting dynasty that will conquer sin and death and time and And God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, in the immediate context, that refers to David's son, Solomon. The kings of Israel were to be as sons of God. But again, as is true with all of Psalm 2, the scope and the vision of this song does not fully fit with any Old Testament king of Israel, especially when you look at the next verse, verse 8, "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession.'" Here the Lord promises to give His anointed the ends of the earth. This is a global empire we're talking about. And at this point, it becomes clear again that the, psalm, the psalmist is speaking past David and the Old Testament kings of Israel to the true and greater anointed one, Jesus Christ. But if that's the case, then when did verse 7 happen? If Jesus is the king, then when was his coronation? When did he formally take up his inheritance? And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 13, where he preaches to the Jews and tells them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the prophesied king greater than his forefather David, superior to all who came before him. And Paul says to them that we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, 
This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you're waiting for an Easter connection, that's it. Paul connects this formal royal decree of Christ's kingship with his resurrection from the dead. It's not that Jesus wasn't the Son of God before the resurrection or that He wasn't king before the resurrection, but His kingship to a degree was veiled during His life. He he came as a lowly servant, humbling Himself even to the point of death. But the resurrection is a rebirth. Jesus walks out of the tomb as a new creation, and the resurrection becomes the formal public declaration of Jesus' identity. It's his vindication in light of his murder at the hands of his enemies, and it becomes his coronation. Who ever heard of that? Who ever heard of a coronation in a graveyard? And yet, here we have it. And as Jesus emerges from the tomb on Sunday morning, he is demonstrated to be more than a normal king, greater than David, greater than Solomon. They, They all died, and they're still dead. But Jesus' resurrection tells us that he is the one who can fulfill the promises of an everlasting kingdom because he himself is everlasting. And he is a son of God. He is in a way that is, that is totally unique and different from the ancient kings of Israel because he is God. If you're new to Christianity, don't let that throw you off. That can be confusing. Uh, there is only one God, but He exists as three persons. Uh, God the Father establishes God the Son as King who is anointed by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, but there's more to this decree from God to His anointed. In verse 8, the Father says to the Son, "'Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession.'" So here's the promise of global inheritance, which is actually a reiteration of a more ancient promise given to Judah way back in Genesis 49 that said that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The peoples means the various people groups of the world. And again, this was never experienced by any of the previous Davidic kings, only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus, the one who has power over death itself, can have a kingdom that encompasses the whole world. And Jesus' resurrection marked the beginning of kingdom expansion. That's why Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to His disciples emphasize taking the message of the King to people everywhere. And so he tells them in the wake of his resurrection in, uh, in, Acts chapter, or in uh, Matthew chapter 28 that all authority has been given to me. And on the basis of his kingly authority, he says in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks of the gospel as that which was promised beforehand concerning His Son, who was descended from David and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. And as the church in subsequent generations has advanced the gospel, 
And even as missionaries today press into the unreached people groups in the remotest corners of the earth, and even as you yourself spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own personal circles, you do so as ambassadors of the resurrected King as God uses you to fulfill His great plan to have obedient people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Folks, this is where the arc of history is bending. Everything is advancing in this direction, and you can't stop it. The king will have a people for himself as his inheritance for his glory. If you thought the boundaries of Solomon's kingdom was impressive, wait until you see what's coming. Uh, This king will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. The entire cosmos will be reshaped and reformed for his people to enjoy, where there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering or sickness or death, and there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But notice verse 9. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. One commentator writes that that God commissioned the Messiah to use whatever force is necessary to subdue the world and take his inheritance. A king may need to send troops to put down an uprising in a rebellious province. First, he sends messengers under a flag of truce. If they are rejected, then he will have to use force. In the same way, Christ calls people everywhere to repent before he comes to use force. God has charged him to put an end to this world's rebellion. In Revelation 19, the Apostle John has a vision which describes a great future event where you have a Psalm 2-like situation, a world that is largely in rebellion against God. And the Apostle John, in his vision, he sees uh, coming from heaven a, a rider on a white horse, and it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's symbolism. There's not a literal sword coming from Jesus' mouth. That's silly. It's, it's symbolic for the power of His Word. Uh, just by speaking, He destroys His enemies, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. That, that's Psalm 2. Again, quoting Psalm 2. Do you know Psalm 2 is the, the most quoted, alluded to Psalm in the New Testament? It's pretty important. We should probably pay more attention to it than we do. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The kings of the earth have set themselves up against the Lord's anointed. But here in Revelation 19, Jesus proves himself to be the king of kings. And trust me, if this day comes, if that day comes in your lifetime, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. It will be a day of terror and destruction for those who fight against the Lord's anointed, the king of history. But thankfully, the psalm doesn't end there. The end of the psalm gives us the hope of history, the hope of history. If we are rebels, if we have offended this great and mighty king who can bring destruction through the word of his mouth, if we've angered him because of our sin, where then is the hope? Verse 10 says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, get on the right side of his story. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath 
is quickly kindled. So here's a final warning for the rebel. Kiss the son. Pay homage to the son. Stop trying to be your own king and receive him as Lord, lest he be angry and you perish, because the penalty for sin, for treason against the king, is death and eternal punishment in hell. Those who spend their lives stiff-arming the rule of God now will be denied and shut out of the wonderful blessings and enjoyments and benefits that come with His rule for eternity. So where's the hope? Well, it's right at the end of the psalm. Blessed or happy are all who take refuge in Him. And here's the interesting twist in the story. The way to be safe from the king is not to run from the king, but to run to the king, to take refuge in Him. You see, the good news is that the death of Jesus on Good Friday was not an accident. It didn't happen because Jesus' enemies got the best of Him. Remember, God is the sovereign God, and every time His enemies lift a hand to defy Him, they end up serving His purposes, and it's no different here. You see, the king loved the rebel so much that he stood in the place of the rebel and took the wrath and judgment of God meant for the rebel upon himself. So going back to Acts 4 and that prayer of Peter and John, uh, I read to you most of the prayer, but, but I left out one crucial part of the, of the prayer. And after they quote Psalm 2, they say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever they wanted to do? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel conspired together to do this thing, and they are certainly guilty for their evil, murderous decision. And yet, at the same time, in their foolish attempt to do away with the Lord's anointed, they end up fulfilling the Lord's plan. What the raging rulers meant for evil, God meant for good. And King Jesus died on the cross a criminal's death because we were criminals and lawbreakers before God. He paid the price for sinners. He suffered God's judgment. And so Jesus' resurrection from the grave is not only the coronation of the king, it is the evidence that the king's payment for the sins of his people was fully accepted by God. And so the resurrection of Jesus stands as both a hope and a warning. On the one hand, the resurrection is, as Jason Meyer writes, the advance warning that judgment is coming. The king has been raised, the rebellion failed, the resurrection changes everything. Since the sun rose from the dead, history is now racing toward judgment like a freight train with a full head of steam. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. But the resurrection, yes, on the one hand is a warning, but on the other hand, it's also the great hope for those who would lay down their pride and turn to Him. Because the resurrection is the guarantee that all who trust in Him needn't fear the judgment of God because the price has already been paid. And it's also the guarantee that God's people belong to their loving King now and forever. 
Revelation 5 says of Jesus, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And so if you're here this morning, and you know that you are a rebel against God, there is hope for you. Jesus came into the world to suffer and die for people just like you. And so I urge you to receive Jesus' gracious gift to you. Don't resist the King. Don't try to to throw off His yoke in an attempt to find life and happiness on your own. It won't work. The Scripture says elsewhere that the sorrows of those who chase after another God will multiply. Whether that God is an idol of sticks and stones, or money, or your own plans, dreams, and desires. Whenever someone attempts to free themselves from God's control, the result is always some sort of bondage. Bondage to their own selfish desires, bondage to the the fear of man or fear of other things, bondage to guilt. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave of sin. Indeed, the Proverbs say there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And in truth, the bonds and the cords that you seek to throw off that yoke that you want to cast aside, they're they're not bonds that stifle freedom and joy. They're bonds of love and grace. God's relationship with His people is not the relationship of a cruel dictator imprisoning people and making life horrible for them. Instead, God says in Hosea chapter 11, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down to them and fed them. And then Jesus comes along later and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." He was speaking to people who had a heavy yoke around their neck, a, a yoke of the, of the law, a yoke of, of, of trying to, uh, to, to earn their way uh, to, uh, to God's favor, a, a yoke of, of doing things their own way. Jesus says, why would you do that when you can take my yoke and find rest? Rebellious man, in his restless attempt to find peace and happiness and rest in anything outside of God, will forever be without true, lasting peace and real joy and rest for the soul. He'll be forever without that until he submits himself to the yoke of the Lord's anointed, the yoke of Christ, the yoke of the risen King. Will you receive him today as your King? Let's pray.